Welcome to Hi-Fi Nation for Slate Plus on our final episode, Justice and Retribution. For this Slate Plus episode, I'm in conversation with law professor and philosopher Kimberly Furzan of the University of Pennsylvania, talking about how to implement a partly retributive and partly preventive regime of criminal justice. Her view is that we should separate criminal justice into two different institutions, two different kinds of courts, with two different sets of laws, and have different standards for when to punish people and when to intervene to prevent them from committing a crime. Great, Kim. So let's start with some 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 definitions uh, of terms. So this is sort of the slate audience here. Um, maybe some people went to law school, maybe not. Could you tell us what, uh, say, a purely retributive system of criminal law is supposed to be? So a purely retributive system will have two components. So the first is that you think we shouldn't punish people who don't deserve it. Right. So we're not going to take someone and scapegoat them because we'll get good consequences from that. And we're not going to punish them disproportionately to the crime that they committed. Right. So if somebody commits shoplifting and it's really, really, really hard to deter them, we're still not going to keep them in jail for 10 years for such a teeny tiny crime because that's not what they deserve. I also think the second component, though, besides the restriction that you can't punish someone who doesn't deserve it or in excess of the dessert, is the thought that you punish people because they deserve it. So the reason for punishing is to give them stigma and hard treatment. It is to make them suffer. So a pure retributive system could potentially have both of those components. Okay, good. What is a purely purely preventive system of criminal law? So I don't think that we have a purely preventive system of criminal law. We have purely preventive systems when we incapacitate people who are seriously mentally ill who we think are dangerous. That would be a time in which we're purely preventive. Uh, And then there are Uh, Other things like detaining uh, sex offenders where we sometimes do that, sexual predators, where we're doing that for purely preventative reasons, sometimes even after they've served uh, their criminal uh, sentence. Uh, But right now, I think that we generally hold true to thinking that people should typically deserve things and that we're not walking in saying, you look dangerous, let's now lock you up, which I think would be the purely preventive system. The the contrast that I was trying to draw was between the desert and disease dichotomy that we see in criminal law theory. And the desert-disease dichotomy is that desert is what you do to responsible actors. When you have a responsible agent, to trust him, to respect him, is to wait until he's done something that is deserving of punishment. And that's the only way that we can intervene against responsible agents. On the other hand, when you have somebody who is non-responsible, for example, mentally ill, then the state can step in to prevent the agent. But that you're not supposed to if you're an autonomy-respecting or person-respecting state, step in to prevent agents uh, in a preventive way, what you're supposed to do is wait and use the criminal law. Okay. So given that, let's now go to like the really tough, you know, uh, legal territory of these inchoate crimes. Could like, let's start like very basic. What is an inchoate crime? So... An inchoate crime is a crime that hasn't come to completion. Things like attempts, solicitation, conspiracy, so something early on in the chain that's going to eventuate in the commission of a a crime. 
Okay. So um so something like like possession of brass knuckles or something. Like right, which is a preparatory right, because that's a preparatory offense that's that's um targeting something further along the line as opposed to in fact uh something that we think is wrong in and of itself. Good. All right. So now that we have a definition of those crimes, um, so tell me why a retributivist has a problem making sense of or justifying these kinds of crimes. So the problem that comes in with preparatory offenses is that sometimes we're drawing a moral, we're, we're looking for the moral line at which a person really deserves punishment, right? And then if we decide that an attempt should be set at a particular place and then we create these sort of earlier offenses, then we're not punishing somebody because we think that he deserves it. We're punishing him simply because we want to stop him. And and so our criminal justice system then is pretending that it's doing dessert when in fact it's just doing peer prevention. And my thought was, well, wait a minute, there's actually – uh, a, a gap between these that can be filled with something like the way we think about self-defense, which is what I call liability to preventive interference. And liability to preventive interference is the idea that sometimes responsible agents ground our or justify our preventive responses uh, to what they have done so that we can stop them. And if self-defense can be responsibility uh, preserving or respecting, uh, autonomy respecting, then so too can the state uh, have a system of preventive interference that is likewise uh, autonomy respecting. Okay, good. So the concept of liability plays an important role in you, your view. Tell us how you think about it. Is it the same way that, say, a retributive, retributivist thinks about criminal culpability, for instance? So liability is a term of art that was crafted by Jeff McMahon in the self-defense literature. And there are reasons to think that we should potentially abandon the use of the word liability simply in favor of forfeiture. Because what McMahon wanted to do with liability was pack in a lot of things that are required for self-defense to be justified. So it's that you're a bad actor. It's that the that uh, the response is proportionate. It's that the response is necessary. It's that the person's motivated by defensive reasons. So there's a lot that gets packed into this notion of liability. And so it might just be easier to think about what I'm working on as forfeiture, right? So the idea is that you forfeit rights against somebody trying to stop your attack uh, or against somebody trying to interfere with what you're doing such that you're no longer wronged. Right. And we think that if somebody's trying to shoot you and you shoot that person, you haven't wronged that person. And that's the same kind of notion that I'm using for liability to preventive interference. Right. So tell me what are the conditions you think that people make themselves liable? Let's not use that term. Let's use forfeiture for the whole episode, just out of consistency. Tell me what the, are the conditions you think someone forfeits their rights in this way? So I think you can forfeit in two different ways. One way is that you have a culpable intention. And from uh, what philosophers would call a fact-relative point of view or what you could just think of as an omniscient or all-knowing all point of view, the person actually will cause harm. So I form the intention to kill you now on Monday, and I, on Friday I actually will successfully kill you without intervention. Then, in fact, 
I have forfeited rights. But the other way I think you can forfeit, because that one sort of requires knowing quite a bit, is in fact when you cause the other person to believe uh, that in fact you are a threat. So I have a whole paper about where somebody goes into a 7-Eleven with an unloaded gun, right, and points it uh, at the uh, clerk and says, you know, now I'm going to kill you. And the clerk kills him. And I think it's clear that the clerk doesn't wrong the bluffer, despite the fact that the bluffer doesn't, in fact, have any ability to execute the threat. So either having the intention with the and actually being able to execute it or will execute it, or in fact, creating that appearance, both of those are sufficient for forfeiture. Right. And you don't mean just mere causing to believe. It has to be some kind of justifiably causing you to believe or something like that, right? Well, so I wish I could say that. Uh, I'm more inclined to think that if you know someone's particularly susceptible to forming, so you've got to be culpable in terms of causing that belief, right? In terms of either the intention or the belief. So if I, in fact, know that you think all water guns are, in fact, real guns, and I point that at you, knowing you will then form the belief that I'm about to kill you, then I don't think it matters that, in some sense, your belief would be unjustified. Right, that a reasonable person wouldn't come to that to that same belief. Right. Well, let me, but I, yeah. I go ahead. Well, I mean, like uh, you know, one ex- like an example that I that that occurred to me was that uh, sometimes the mere presence of a large black man could you know cause somebody to believe that they're in danger of some th- something or another, uh, in which you know that's not the kind of situation that you're talking about. Oh, absolutely not. So I think you have to culpably cause someone to believe that. And there's no way in which walking around, going about your business means you're consciously disregarding substantial and unjustifiable risks of uh, bringing about someone else's belief. I mean, that really winds up being located in the unjustifiability component, that there's nothing there. There would be no reason to restrict one person's liberty because somebody else has some sort of potentially racist beliefs about how uh, about what a threat a particular African-American might be. Yeah. What's involved in culpably causing somebody to believe something? So I think it is an awareness that your behavior increases the likelihood that that person will perceive you as a threat. And having no good reason for, in fact, increasing that probability. Okay. Good. Um, All right. So my next question would be, uh, so we're talking about these things in fact-relative terms, right? When it comes to particular crimes that, um, that that the state has an interest in using preventive force against an individual... Um, we usually think the state has standards of proof or standards of evidence that they have to meet in order to, in the retributive case, punish somebody, right? And in this kind of case, it's going to be preventive interference, right, in, in the interest of self-defense. What standards of proof do you think the state ought to have with respect to, you know, when somebody has forfeited their rights? So... I actually think that we wind up with proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So I did a paper trying to work through uh, what that standard would be. And I started thinking perhaps it's slightly different when we're dealing with um, preventive interference and the false positives and false negatives look a little bit different in those cases. Uh, Nevertheless, 
given the at what they people would call an adversarial deficit, the power of the state compared to the citizen, I wound up tentatively endorsing proof beyond a reasonable doubt, even for cases of preventive interference. That's really high. I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, I mean, one of the justifications for pretrial detention is preventive uh, intervention, right? And pretrial detention is nowhere. I mean, nobody thinks that that's beyond a reasonable doubt or close to that. I think that we think that a lot of what's going on with pretrial detention, though, is completely unjustified. The way, in fact, that we use the crime that's charged, what our real reasons are. So our real reasons for holding somebody, right, have to be either that we think they're going to kill some witness or something or that they're going to skip town. And nothing short of those two sorts of things really justifies holding them. And then there's the question of like, well, what do we owe that person before we're going to detain that person because they won't show up, which has one set of reasons, or because we think that they're they're potentially dangerous to witnesses in the case, which is a separate set of reasons, right? Otherwise, we're just doing some sort of other preventive interference that's not grounded in this case, right? And and so whether or not we would wind up thinking maybe we want proof beyond a reasonable doubt or whether we want clear and convincing evidence once we actually know what the factors are that we're using and why we're using them, right? So, Right. Yeah, I wanted you to say that, though, that a lot of that is unjustified. I mean, that's a <laughs> position that follows from, yeah. right? I mean, it is, yeah. And you're happy to embrace yep. it. <laughs> yeah. I, I would have thought that preventive intervention being preventive rather than backward-looking and 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 punitive had to meet a lower standards because in the preventive regime so much of what the state is asking what we're asking the state to prove is mental right as opposed to like there's some footage of somebody doing this thing it's it's intent right like that's essentially what it is I'm not sure I see why the fact that it's intent would point to, I suppose, I guess it's just harder to prove and that's why you think it should yeah. be lower. But, yeah, that's right. But we, if if you think that part of what my regime is going to do is relocate things that are currently in the criminal law over into a preventive regime, it's going to take all of those preparatory offenses out of one place and put them somewhere else. What we're doing with preparatory offenses, when we talk about possession of burglar's tools, right, having a crowbar and an intention, right, what we're, we're still requiring the state to prove that intention beyond a reasonable doubt. So yes, it may sometimes be hard for the state, but I think this is a question about what the state owes someone before it subjects them to some sort of interference. And yeah, sometimes the burdens of proof are going to mean that we're going to have gaps and we're not going to be able to prove things or punish people who really deserve it because we can't meet proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But, you know, that's that's a bullet I'm willing to bite, you know, 365 days a year. So you write also that preventive regimes and retributive regimes differ as to who bears the risk of error. Can you tell us what that means? In terms of Retributive regimes, I think that the state always bears uh, the burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. I think that what I start talking about within the preventive regime is, well, what happens once the state has shown that the person has the culpable intention at one particular time and now the state is intervening in some sort of way? What is it that... uh, who should then have to show what later on, right? So you could imagine a hearing where we say, look, here's, you know, Kim's diary that says, I'm going to kill Barry tomorrow, right? And so we've now established she has this intention. And you might think that then 
I have to show through some sort of affirmative defense that I have now abandoned that intention in order to for the state not to intervene against me. I think it also has a role in terms of the people who create the the misimpressions that they lack the ability to complain. I can't say, well, like you shouldn't have shot me because um, my gun was unloaded. It's my fault that you had that belief, and therefore I can't complain about you acting on it. Right. So, like in the retributive regime, that's not the case. That that the the state isn't has a burden to prove ongoing need to punish or something like that, whereas... So, so no. So the state, yeah. right, once I've shot you and missed, right, I shot at you and I missed, the state simply says, that's an extremely culpable action. You deserve a lot of punishment and you go to jail for that, right? And the state isn't doing any sort of day-to-day nuanced calculation about... Uh, whether I still harbor an intention or I don't harbor an intention or do I still necessarily deserve it, right? The the dessert is all backward looking in terms of the, the moment of that hearing is really setting uh, what what kind of punishment I deserve. Right. So, um, so I guess one of the things that um, I'm wondering about is, um, you know, forfeiting your rights. What's the timeline on that? Like I, I forfeited my right the instant I formed some intention, Right. But as you accept, none of that is a guarantee of a future crime. Sometimes like we make assumptions about how stable people's intentions are, how predictable they are and how stable their character traits are. But we know sort of through a lot of research that things are not that stable, like people age out of their youthful formations of criminal intentions. How does that play a role in determining whether or not they still have forfeited their rights and so forth. It's clearly not the case that you think, well, at every given stage, they have to prove that they don't have that criminal intent anymore. At a certain point, you just say, look, uh, we're just going to assume that you don't have it anymore, right? Right. So let me first say that I think the sort of instability of intentions is one of the reasons why, in my work with Larry Alexander, I push the line for attempts as close to completion as I do, is the idea, well, look, people change their minds all the time. Their their intentions are conditional in all sorts of ways. How how can we possibly be confident that the person, in fact, is going to go through with the offense and you're really punishing based on some sort of mushy prediction and not based on something they really culpably did, right? Because we know intentions get abandoned so frequently. Um, so then the question is, well, in my system – the view would be after maybe, let's say, six months, and maybe it depends on what the target is, you revisit things. And you could then have a position that uh, there's kind of a necessary step down in the level of interference, unless it's you know something, some extremely serious crime, and that there's another showing that the state has to make to show that it's in fact necessary that you still have the intention and that some sort of state interference is still uh, required. So it would be the kind of thing that we would expect the state to sort of gradually step out of the people's lives, uh, short of some sort of you know you you can have cases with sexual predators that have very clear intentions where we think like we may never be able to let this person go. Uh, but that wouldn't be the sort of typical case of preventive interference. Right. So so I guess what plays into 
the determination of like six months versus like, like is it the, the best science that we have of the day? Because I feel like a lot of the ways that people do it is just like, at least with the retributivist, it's like, well, it's because it's a heinous thing. Like, like child predators, that's horrible. So we're just going to fit the, the, the degree of which we think it's horrible to like how long we should put them away. But when it comes to prevention, it's kind of like we don't know. I feel like we don't know that much. And, we're, and I'm worried that we're kind of resorting back to our feelings of, oh, that's a heinous. That's so heinous. So I'll confess that this has practical problems, just as the criminal law has practical problems. So part of the problem with uh, sexual predator detention is you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. You know, if you go and see a psychologist and say, I have all of these terrible, you know, desires I'm trying to cope with, the psychologist gets on the stand and says, this person has terrible desires and they're still dangerous. If you deny that you have any of those intentions anymore, the psychologist says, You're com- this person's completely in denial, right? And so there, there is some worry um, about how you go about showing those things. I think that at the end of the day, we are going to be stuck with our best empirical evidence. We're going to be stuck with the testimony of the defendant. And for those reasons, we are really going to want to have mechanisms that really uh, default to retreating. Uh, unless we're really convinced we have the empirical evidence that you have to you have to keep the baseline intervention quite high, right? So um, I'm I'm sure that's not a completely satisfactory answer, but I think that's partly because we live in a world where we're really we're just not particularly good at these kinds of predictions. What would be involved in separating the um, retributive regime from the preventive regime? Would it just be having uh, like a separate courts that adjudicate them separately? I think you'd have to have an entirely separate system. So my goal isn't to put people in jail when we're preventing, right? So we'd want to think about when, if we actually have to incapacitate people, what the conditions for that incapacitation are. But they're not driven by stigma and hard treatment. So the way in which we intervene with people, the publicness of that is going to be different for prevention than it's going to be for punishment. And then, yes, we'd probably need uh, different courts um, in the same way that we, but I don't, I don't know that that's as different. You know, we think that that's me inventing something, but we have juvenile courts that shouldn't look like that look somewhat like criminal justice courts and somewhat not. We have Title IX university regulations that are sort of looking somewhat like other university regulations and somewhat like Title VII. So the idea that something might have its own independent justification and then need its own set of procedures, uh, you know, may just be the right way to go in the the way that's pure to to the reason why the state's allowed to intervene. Okay. So given that, as as um, as someone who's just told me that they're a card-carrying retributivist with respect to a bunch of criminal laws, when a judge is sentencing now and claims to be not only taking considerations of desert, but also taking into considerations of dangerousness, right, things like that, would you say that that's okay currently? Or do you think that that's um, mushing, (laughs) that's a technical term in philosophy, mushing two things together that ought not be together, that ought to be separated? I think that dessert is both necessary, meaning don't punish the innocent, and sufficient to, to punish someone. But I do recognize that 
because it's expensive, we may have reasons why we're not going after everyone or punishing them to the full extent of what they deserve. I do think, though, that dessert is setting both the ceiling and the floor in a way, right? It's it's okay for the fact that if somebody deserves it, that in fact, the fact that it serves deterrent purposes as well is fine with me. Um, I guess let me take a step back and say this. I think that there are times that part of what goes on is that we have overcrowded prisons, we don't know what to do, and we want to selectively incapacitate only the dangerous and not incapacitate people who aren't dangerous for purely preventive reasons when they may have both committed the same crime. And then, um, as you know, right, that creates all kinds of distributive problems because the distributive injustices that existed ex ante are going to be mirrored by exactly who gets selected out for being incapacitated. So in an ideal world, and again, I don't have a, a real world solution to this, but in an ideal world, we would have more mechanisms to signal that we are punishing somebody than just incarceration, right? So part of it would be, can we subject everyone to punishment and to the amount that they deserve, but only incapacitate those people who are also dangerous? So it would be a difference in mode of punishment, but it wouldn't be a difference in some ways in the amount of punishment that they deserve. And I recognize that currently we don't really have the legal imagination for figuring out what that is. Part of it is I think we wind up thinking Every other mechanism sounds completely barbaric while failing to recognize that our current mechanism of locking people in cages and subjecting them to potentially being sexually assaulted is currently barbaric. Uh, But we need some sort of mechanism for doing that. Like we don't like caning in this country. Right. Right. We don't like caning in this country. Gosh, I mean, I don't know that I want to go on a podcast and advocate caning. (laughs) But my students do though. My students say like, why are we putting people away for 15 years rather than caning them or something like that? We need different modes of punishment. I think that 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 is a question of like why we think that our current system is so such a good one compared to what the other options might potentially be. Thank you for listening to this season of Hi-Fi Nation. I will see you in season five. <laughs>